0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast.
1: A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Tell
1: Welcome,
0: Welcome to, to the, the Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner.
1: This is Teluca and ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner podcast. All massage therapists and body workers can access free ABMP resources and information on the coronavirus and the massage profession at abmp.com slash COVID-19, including sample release forms, PPE guides, and a special issue of Massage and Body Work magazine, where Whitney and I are frequent contributors. For more, check out the ABNP podcast available at abmpcom slash podcasts or wherever you prefer to listen. Hey, Whitney, what's up?
0: Uh, good afternoon, sir. It's a hot afternoon in central Oregon here, but uh, looking forward to having a good chat with you today and that will be cool. So that's got like, cool, right, it up. cool it <laughs> off.
1: Okay, so I'm hot here just outside of Boulder too, but uh, looking forward to our conversation, we wanted to talk about the neck. And I got to conf- yeah. Before we start the neck and the cervical region, before we start, right. I have to confess that about a year ago, I was sitting at my treatment table working on somebody, and the thought went through my mind: maybe I should just specialize in the neck only. Maybe I can be like a neck-only practitioner and just sit here at the head of my table all day and just do necks. Right. Yeah. I love that thought.
0: Yeah. So, I have to. A, while we're yeah, in the midst of confessing, I'll okay. I'll make a brief confession here too. This was early on in my massage practice. Um, I have a tendency sometimes to keep some very weird uh, hours, and I get sleepy in the afternoon, especially like right after that lunch time. Oh. And I was working on somebody one time. It was one of those, you know. I was back in the South. I was back in the hot Georgia afternoons and I was working on somebody and I dozed off while I was working on them. Oh my God. Yeah. You know, is was that same sitting in the chair. Oh, this feels so relaxing. This stuff that I was doing, working on the neck and everything. I just did a little, the little head nod. <laughs> okay. I uh, need to, okay. need to I got here.
1: I got to tell you this story. I, this is not what we planned, but it's got, I, I can't, I can't not tell you this. Uh, one of my colleagues in uh, Italy tells the story about, doing that actually falling asleep during some really quiet cranial work at the end of the session jerking awake and his client said that was amazing that was the <laughs> that never had anything like that happen before so we actually started uh, incorporating that into his sessions as a closing technique he put his he put his hands on the client's head put his head down on the table and take a little mini- miniature dose
0: at the end something magical happens during that period i think yeah, maybe I'll put that
1: as a book in our technique manual.
0: Okay, it's it's an entrainment uh, technique. That's right.
1: But anyway, that's not what we we're going to talk about. I wanted to find out some about something about the ways that you're working with the neck in your program, the way you assess it, what how you're thinking about that whole region, and then we also want to talk about how we translate that you know, online,
0: yeah, format. Yeah, yeah, some some modifications and uh, tweaks and changes going on for lots of folks these days. So, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about strategies and and content too. That sounds good.
1: Strategies, content, and how to learn all this stuff online, perhaps. And I, I'm looking forward to hearing a little more about what you do because, you know, we have these conversations, but I I don't get to know your work very well. So I'm looking forward to digging into that.
0: Okay, let's do
1: it. So, what what would you say are some of the more challenging factors? in assessment and treatment for this region that we're talking about the neck and cervical region what would you say what are the challenges
0: yeah there's some very significant challenges around um, identifying i think the sort of like what is the um you know in the old days i used to think of this as what is the primary problem tissue but now uh, mm. with with sort of a lot of the new things that have come out understanding and focusing on pain science and some revisions of biomechanics and I like to think of uh, like what is the primary nociceptive driver now instead of maybe like what's, what's at fault. They may be the same thing, but sometimes they're not the same thing. But um, So let me I, see if I get yeah. that
1: distinction. You're saying what is driving the sensitivity or nociception? As opposed to what's driving a particular tissue quality or density or st- you know, et cetera. Yeah, right?
0: because uh, I think formerly I was always looking for a tissue at fault um, having been injured, damaged, dysfunctional, or something like that. Yeah. And uh, while that may be the case in many instances, I think now I try to keep uh, a, a little bit bigger tent and a bigger picture of this, and think about them in terms of. What is the, the sort of like if I say, like, or the client says, Hey, I, I turn my neck to the side and this makes it hurt? Mm-hmm. Um, we try to identify what is it that's doing that, that's making it hurt. And that may, that's really essentially what the nociceptive driver is, but it may not be a muscle strain, a ligament sprain, a torn tissue, a nerve compression. It might be that's the movement that has caused them pain from a previous injury and now it's sort of reestablishing the or, you know, firing back up the. Neural irritation or something like that. So we think about that as a a nociceptive driver more so than just like what's the damaged tissue per se. Great, So in in terms of uh, a a big challenge with this in the cervical region, it's a lot harder, I think in the cervical region than many other parts of the body because of the complexity of the muscles in particular that lend uh, movement in this region. So for example, um, let's say it, comparing this to something like the the knee or thigh region, where your your motion is really simple in these pretty much straightforward planes. The uh, motion in the sagittal plane of flexion and extension of the knee. If something hurts on your anterior thigh, it's pretty easy to narrow that down to um, structures that are going to be somehow rather stressed during those motions of flexion and extension. But in the cervical region, this becomes really complicated because of the coordinated action of these muscles, because you have muscles that are ipsilateral rotators and some that are contralateral rotators. And for example, those for those of you maybe not as familiar with those terms, ipsilateral rotators referring to those muscles that are on the same side of the neck as you're turning to. So for example, something like the splenius capitis muscle on the right side turns the head to the right. But the SEM, or sternocleidomastoid muscle, on the right side turns the head to the left. So you've got to be thinking about those different movement patterns when you try to isolate which motion reproduces the discomfort a person's feeling and where do they feel it. And that can get pretty messy uh, trying to tease those things apart. And I think that's one of the things that kind of keeps people from zeroing in on, on what really is, is the problem uh, region or problem tissues or structures or nociceptive drivers, whatever we want to call them, um, as easily. That's a, a pretty challenging thing. So um, that's one of the things that I've been looking at a lot over the years is how do we try to simplify that process and give people some tools for uh, looking at that more effectively? And we'll catch up based on a few of those uh, strategies in the, in the second half when we, when we talk about some of those strategies. So... Um, those are some of the things that I see as particularly challenging. Uh, what about what about you? Um, channel well, that's good. Factors in that's this.
1: good. I mean, just this first idea you brought up for us that sensitivity is different than tissue quality, or that at least we're, you're thinking about them as independent factors, that's really helpful for me, too, in both my work with clients and in training students, to really tease those apart. And it's really rare that a, a client comes in and says, hey, I got this, like, funny stiff spot in my neck that I felt with my hand and I'm really would like you to help me soften that. It's rare. They say that they come and says, Hey, I got this stiff movement. When I turn my head, it hurts. So I'm actually thinking I want to impact what the client experiences, which is much closer to the pain experience than say the actual tissue quality per se. So I'm with you on that. And that is a challenge because most of our training had us orienting toward what is the muscle? What is the tissue that we want to target to get, the widget fascial layer, say, we want to target to get the desired results. Uh, So I think, though, that there's pretty simple, I found pretty simple ways around that. And the simple way around that is probably similar to what you're using. I use movements as an assessment. I want to find the movement that's sensitized or the position that's sensitized and use that as our touchstone or as our guide as we work through the neck, say, joint by joint. That's the first challenge. Second challenge is it's uh, tempting, like, I, like the temptation I had at my head of my table, just to think about the neck in isolation. And the neck, like nowhere else in the body, responds to what else is going on in the body. So yeah. the neck is what we use to write the head with, it's what we use to adjust our perceptive apparatus with. And so it's all the time adjusting and um, adapting to what's going on below. And so often it's easy to get that narrow focus on what is hurting in the neck and forget to step back and go, okay, so how does the neck reflect what's going all the way up and down my spine, the way I'm sitting in my chair, the way I'm even uh, standing leg to leg, for example.
0: Yeah. So what do you see as like some of those... um, Sort of connective patterns with different regions. Are there any of those in particular that you think um, are really important for us to focus on in terms of, you know, uh, when we have somebody that comes in with neck complaints? Are there places that you go to say, well, we definitely want to look at this also and see how much that's related? Or do you? If, do yeah, you look at that's that?
1: such an important question. And it's the one I get from students that I never quite know how to answer because the only real answer is everything. The only real answer is everything, because things are so interconnected and because we function as an interconnected whole, I can't predict where, you know, with any degree of reliability, even after 35 plus years, whatever it's been, where exactly I'm gonna to have to work in the body to help the neck feel better. Though I can say, here's some things that I would wanna make sure that I've also stepped step back and looked at. One, are spinal curves and spinal movements. How does the spine move in its entirety? The neck is part of the spine, and if I'm not mobile or not comfortable in, uh, let's say, my lumbar's, then that's is pretty, you know, pretty predictable. That's going to show up in the neck somehow too. Yeah. So one is uh, spinal issues. The other I could say was jaw. It, the neck and the jaw are really a functional uh, pair, pairing, and just the way that we hold our jaw or let our jaw go or what we do with our mouth as we're using our head is going to have a big influence on the neck as well too. Now I could go down the list, you know, they go, and then it goes to the eyes. Then it goes to the arms, right. I really need the yes. arms and the shoulder girdle to
0: be part of that picture yeah. too. Yeah.
1: But how about you? What, you know, how do you keep that big picture or how do you deal with those challenges that you see?
0: I would say very much in a similar way, and I want to call attention back to something you mentioned a moment ago and just kind of maybe discuss this or or kind of, of talk about this because it's something I don't hear talked about a great deal, but what you mentioned when we were talking about related areas and you talk about the jaw and it's it's similarity to what's going on with the the neck region, this seems to me to be an area which does not get taught very much in... Mm most of our at least uh, entry-level training programs and certainly in very few advanced training programs too. And it's a pretty complex uh, biomechanical area. And I, I do think, like you mentioned, there's a lot of relationship with what goes on in, in the cervical region there. And I wonder how many things kind of get missed because uh, people aren't, um, you know, sort of looking at some of those kinds of relationships because, uh, you know, that certainly is is pertinent here. And then, of course, the the entire upper extremity has a lot of relationship with what's going on in in the cervical region, especially because of neural pathways from the neck and down to the upper arm. So just the whole biomechanical uh, kinetic chain from the upper extremity through uh, what's happening in the in the upper traps and into the uh, cervical area too. So a lot of those things seem also very I, very related with what we're I hand
1: on. functional patterns. Yes, uh, uh, the ways yep. the shoulder girdle drapes around the upper thoracic segment. You know, those, all those factors play into the fact of the, the upper extremity and the shoulders being a really relevant factor whenever there's neck pain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So when we look, you know, we we'll, uh, look at this in terms of like, how do we try to address some of these problems? Um, you know, I, I would say that I, I've been less inclined to want to look for um, like a solo cause and you know more frequently like you mentioned look for broad scale patterns you know Mm. of, of things that might be relationships in there but there are also instances where i think it's valuable to look at you know can we nail this down to something that looks like it might be a more singular type of thing that we need to pinpoint some folks some specific focus and attention on and that certainly has been my rationale and reason for putting so much emphasis on assessment is that it seems like there are times when it is particularly helpful to do that. And when you know, looking at certain types of evaluation procedures and things like that. Um, do you have are an example helpful. for us? Yeah. So, um, for example, trying to make some discriminations when, uh, let's say a client comes in and says uh, they have, um, you know, a sharp kind of neurological sensation in the neck that seems to be maybe going down the upper extremity. And we're trying to make some distinctions between the potential possibility of um, cervical or nerve root compression by, let's say, discs or uh, bone spurs or Mm -hmm. spinal tumors or something like that versus a more peripheral nerve entrapment problem in the neck region, possibly still like in the thoracic outlet area there that might produce both of those would produce neurological sensations down the upper extremity, but your treatment yes. approach would vary significantly in addressing those things. And so that's you know one of the reasons why I, I still do think it's, it's really valuable in a lot of instances to try, to try to pinpoint some of those things when possible.
1: So you're saying, is it the quality of pain that would help you discriminate between, say, uh, those different conditions you named?
0: Those would be really difficult to identify by quality of pain. Now, okay. for example, making a distinction between something like a muscle strain versus a nerve compression problem might be a little bit more easy with quality. But the uh, the example. others that we How, mentioned- what, what
1: are some of the qualities people would see? So, the you
0: know, the, the tendency is for with neurological sensations for people to report very sharp Highly delineated sensations, you know, burning, searing, electrical kinds of things are some of the terms that they might uh, be tending to use. Yeah. And then the the pattern of where that's felt like in particular, is it down like on the back edge of the old, ul- you know, the ulnar side of the hand, which would tend to indicate some ulnar nerve involvement versus you know, something else that might be a, a different specific nerve. So knowing some of those patterns of where they would tend to occur with the symptoms, that's particularly helpful as well. If it's a broader pattern throughout the whole upper extremity, then we might be looking more specifically at, you know, something closer to nerve root level where several of those nerve roots are feeding different par- portions of, of nerve structures, or maybe it's something else again. So, uh, you know, looking at those, Quality of sensations might be uh, helpful, but uh, like in what we were talking about before in terms of making that distinction between something like nerve root, cervical nerve root involvement versus something in the thoracic outlet, that's where biomechanically stressing those different areas with different evaluation procedures and see does one of those irritate those symptoms more than the other is particularly helpful to make those kinds of you know, comparisons. I think. So,
1: you'll do some gentle pain provoking tests to see where, well, what movements and where that pain gets provoked. Is that
0: right? Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. Great. Me too. Love Which, it. you know, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of people, you know, uh, have had sort of challenges understanding this whole idea of like, why would we want to make our clients have more pain? Yeah. But, you know, the, the whole point is you're trying to identify what is it that really lights this up so you can know, you know, where are you going to target your, your approach, uh, essentially? So no, that's yeah, I, true. Think that's, I think that's that true. is still very helpful there. And you, what you said a moment ago, gentle pain provoking or something along those lines of yeah. gentle pain provoking procedures, not go in and wrench somebody's uh, injured area around until they um, scream. That is certainly not what we're trying to get at there
1: well it's a, it's an exploration and really getting the client in that frame of mind so that we're looking together for what movement exactly does make it hurt and when and how much and what's the quality so that investigative attitude and then once we find out that movement or that place then that gives me lots of ideas about how to work with it yeah yeah sometimes just with the actual movement itself we might back it off and play with that you know turn that into a gentle mobilization or desensitization Kind of uh, intervention or something to play with together. Yeah.
0: yeah and I think what you're talking about there too is also such a key part of so many of our different treatment strategies is finding those things that can help restore and move towards pain-free movement in a variety of different ways and, and you may not always have to know exactly what did it but you know some things that make it better and you can reinforce and help those.
1: That's That's an important distinction too that a lot yeah. of times on the table even we can find things that change it. Once yeah. we gently provoke it, so we get some sense of what's the irritant, then we can tease it apart with our touch or with our movements or with our awareness. Yeah. And that's really what they're after too. They want a way to change it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and you know, I still I still do believe that it at least for me in my perspective, and this is probably just part of the way that I look at things, that it is it is yeah. valuable still for practitioners to have. Um, an understanding of some basic principles of biomechanics that help get us there. Like, for example, just the very idea that when a person comes in and says, my neck has been hurting me and it hurts, especially when I do these movements, and they lie down supine on the table, that alone has changed the mechanics in their Mm -hmm. cervical region pretty significantly. And that can lead to something that really makes some beneficial and significant change for them just by changing the load. Um, yes. on there. So it's it's important and valuable to remember those things as, as we right. look at what what we're doing in
1: there. So that's yeah, so that's also an important point. If you can't find the discomfort, if they can't find the trigger while they're lying down, set them back up. Sometimes yeah. that's that's useful too. But you're yeah, what you're saying is very true. Just lying down is a therapeutic intervention and just mobilization in that position or whatever position you're using can be really helpful.
0: Yeah. And uh, as a caveat on that, I would also encourage people when you're thinking about this from the the treatment perspective and working with your clients, especially if they have had some pretty significant neck pain coming in, you do some work with them. It feels really good. You've gotten them looser. They feel wonderful. They feel like they can move more freely. Give them some important coaching about how to get off the table because you're not going to be in the room very likely when they do that to get up and get dressed. Let them know it is really important that they move slowly and carefully at the outset because there's that sort of radical change in proprioception that has occurred during the treatment that all of a sudden the body may not kind of have those patterns organized yet. And we see this frequently where people get up and they, you know, like go back into a sudden spasm or, or super contracture because they just moved a little too quickly or moved a little bit in an odd pattern or direction there. And that's, that's an important one, I think, to keep in, uh, keep in touch with, with our clients. Yes, those are good points.
1: Yeah. Those are great points. So there was a thread recently on uh, one of the Facebook groups about learning more uh, special orthopedic tests. I think this is one of the massage therapy threads. That's something that you've been doing for a while. That's like you know your bread and butter. Where do you see those special orthopedic tests fitting in with treatment sessions when you're working with neck complaints?
0: Yeah. So... You know, my perception about the value of those tests has changed a lot over the years. And I think, you know, my personal opinion is that that a lot of practitioners put too much emphasis on those procedures uh, and see them as um, a bit simplistic in terms of the evaluation process. So, for example, you may have a, a really, you know, beneficial a special orthopedic test that's designed to to highlight the likelihood of a certain type of complaint being present but you can't just go right to that procedure perform it and say oh okay well that must be what's going on because this this hurt them without taking into consideration the entire context of what was in their history what did you see during observation what's happening as you palpate these tissues what motions and movements are painful actively passively all of those things are a big picture that should then Give us a wrapper with which to understand and interpret the results of that orthopedic test. Because too often, people, I think, put too much emphasis on those tests and then don't think about the other things that are pertinent around there. And there, the reality is, there's a lot of these procedures that don't have great uh, reliability factors to them in terms of uh, accuracy. So they shouldn't be taken alone in isolation, but really used in conjunction with those other forms of evaluation, I think, to form an overall picture. So so I like to think of them as just as one of a number of clues that we want to pursue.
1: Okay. So you're saying specific tests, such as give us an example of a special orthopedic test that we need to remember in this.
0: So a really good example of that in the cervical region is, you know, the common condition that we hear a lot of people complain about of thoracic outlet syndrome. Mm -hmm. And one of the most common evaluation procedures, special orthopedic tests that's used to evaluate that potential problem existing is something called the Adson's maneuver, Mm. uh, where a person, you know, you feel the person's pulse and you put their uh, shoulder and neck into a certain position. You see if that changes the intensity of the pulse, indicating a compression of the neurovascular structures in the cervical uh, thoracic outlet region. That particular evaluation procedure, despite the fact that it's used a great deal, has a sort of mediocre level of reliability just because there's a lot of false positives. And so just relying on that alone can take you down a wrong path, I think. And so that's this is why we, we want people to be the thinking practitioner. Okay, There's the plug for our our name again. <laughs> that's our <So>. podcast. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's
1: interesting that you say that because I used to teach that in my thoracic outlet class.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I stopped yeah. with, uh, because it turned out that no matter what the results, and they were fun, it's fun. It's fun to go do that testing. It gives us a sense of like, oh, there it is. We caught it. Yeah, but in the end, we're going to go do the work anyway and see if it helps. Mm -hmm. So that the work becomes the actual test. The work becomes the pragmatic test. Can I affect the symptom? Can I affect the sensitivity with this particular approach? And that's the test. And guess what? If the results are negative, I can't affect it. Then I try a different approach. Yeah, change tags. Right. So that's that's the way that that's my evolution and what you just talked about as well.
0: Right and uh, on the you know on the flip side of that i will say there's other types of procedures Uh, Mm -hmm. something like the upper limb neurodynamic tests that are used a lot in the neural mobilization techniques i find Mm -hmm. those to be really valuable because they can help you narrow down where you might be looking at a problem Uh, even if it doesn't tell you exactly what's happening it really does add in a lot of valuable information about where some neural mobility might potentially be restricted and so that's an example of of something used again in conjunction with a lot of other information that I think can provide some some valuable clinical uh, fodder for us. Well, yeah.
1: I w- I was hoping you would actually share at least one of your tests with us. Actually, tell us how to do that. Would that be a good one? Is there a-
0: that? Sure, that would be a, a good one to talk. It's a little difficult uh, from just the audio only version, <laughs> but just yeah, uh, attempting to explain here the idea behind a neurodynamic test is. Uh, neural tissues need to have a certain degree of mobility to them and there's all kinds of things that might limit that the common nerve compression problems like cervical disc uh, you know impingement or thoracic outlet syndrome yeah and again when we say thoracic outlet syndrome we may be talking about a number of different variations where those nerves are potentially getting compressed between anterior and middle scalene muscles or underneath the clavicle or underneath pec minor. Those are all variations on that. But again, there's multiple locations throughout the pathway where you might see that occurring. So in a neurodynamic test, it's a a procedure that has a sequence of movements that gradually add tension to the nervous system and will eventually end up in a position that fully lengthens that nerve as much as possible. And so you add each one of these sequential positions and see like are their symptoms increased at each step. Um, and then you go through a series of procedures. Some, some of them involve stretching more in the neck region Others involve stretching more at the distal end of that nerve down near the wrist and hand. Mm -hmm. And it's really valuable to kind of look and see where are those symptoms aggravated the most. And then you could take that and reverse the order, like start at the hand first, start stretching them at the hand first. Uh, So here's an example, like if you did one of those neural evaluation tests and you got some symptoms down into the hand, you started stretching the neck region first, then you stretch the shoulder region and then you stretch the arm and down into the hand and you got some symptoms aggravated. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'm trying it out.
0: So then, uh, well, might this be something where like a neural involvement there, like maybe the median nerve is involved or something like that. Well, let's go backwards, start at the hand first. And if those symptoms are aggravated first, when you stretch the hand before you even start getting to the neck, that's a pretty good indication that that's probably close to the region where those, neural tissues are either bound or restricted to some degree, as opposed to up in the, the cervical or upper, upper shoulder area. Okay, if you I don't know, get any I symptoms at I'm, all in let the Let me hand, catch up
1: with you there. Yeah. I, and I know I'm probably oversimplifying, but let me see if I get it so far. If I can do a stretch and you have some fairly systematic ways to check that, but if I can do a stretch that makes uh, the symptom get worse, the nerve symptom, the tingling and numbness, say, either with my head or with my hand, then you're saying I can break that down and kind of reverse engineer that starting systematically at one end or the other and remobilize or at least specify where that unhappy nerve might be
0: yeah. uh, occurring. Yeah. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. And again, keeping in mind, this is not an absolute um, process that you can rely on. That's not going to have any you know flaws or, or, confounding factors confounding because it's factors. not its not an exact science. It's, and nerves it's, aren't an exact yeah. uh, linear structure either. Yeah. So, and,
1: and sometimes, I should just say from my point of view, sometimes uh, it's compression, as you mentioned. Sometimes it's tethering. Things just don't slide. Yep. Like they might interface issues between two surfaces that don't slide as much. Yep. There's some good evidence that sometimes it's actual inflammation of nearby structures that are causing the nerves to be sensitized to yep. those movements as well. Right.
0: And that's exactly where things like your history come into that as being an important factor, because you might want to identify, well, maybe there's, you know, previous injuries in a nearby area, or maybe there's some type of systemic inflammatory disorder a person Mm. is grappling with, and that Mm. might be making those nerves more sensitized. So if you just jump to that orthopedic test alone without taking in those other factors, you miss important pieces of the puzzle. And This uh, is
1: such an important point, such a challenge, too, for me as an educator, and I think it works out, but really there's this there's this drive in all of us to get the t- technique, to know exactly the one thing I can do, and to try to reduce it down to tangible variables that, variables that give me a sense of satisfaction when I observe them. And then the promise that when I treat them, things will be better. Yeah. And of course, sometimes it's like that. And a lot of times, it's not, and that's where the, the mastery level really comes in when I can take all of those kind of understandings and simple, tangible tools and weave them together into a treatment approach that does bring out all those contextual variables and those more complexity, complex things that you've mentioned.
0: Yeah, and we have, I, I guess this is just a human nature thing, but I mean, it's, I know I'm certainly far more susceptible to this because I'm kind of a, a left-brain analytical type of person, but we have this tendency you? to want to put things... <laughs> Sometimes, some days. Okay. Yeah. Um, We do have a tendency sometimes to want to kind of organize, categorize, and compartmentalize things into discrete sets of Mm -hmm. things that we can deal with and think about. And so that's what leads to, you know, I think a lot of times people simply have pain in the neck problems that might be multifaceted from a lot of different directions, but we like to put them into some narrow box or category. Like, you know, we hear nowadays a whole lot about text neck, You know, so that's a good example about just because people are sitting on their phones and with their head down a lot, but there's a lot of similarities between that and uh, typesetters neck and cobbler's neck and, you know, all those other (laughs) occupations that people had for many years where they were doing the same sorts of things. So, you know, is, is it about texting or, you know? What do you think about text neck? It's it's a big it's a big thing that we hear about these days.
1: Do we got time to go into that before our halftime? Should we?
0: I tell you what. Why don't we? Uh, we'll take a quick break from our halftime, and then we'll talk about uh, text, and we'll pick it up yeah. with text neck after that. Look about forward that? to that. So, so our halftime sponsor today. We're going to uh, hear from Books of Discovery. So Andrew Beal, the uh, author of Trail Guide to the Body, is going to give us a quick little uh, note about some uh, offers from Books of Discovery. Books of Discovery might be best known for producing Trail Guide to the Body, but we're also a whole lot more. We bring you the clinical learning tools you need to inform your intentional bodywork. Check out our Kinesiology, Pathology, and A&P texts. They not only build the foundation upon which great educators like Till and Whitney rely, but will also support you through your entire career. Books of Discovery is proud to support The Thinking Practitioner, and are offering a 15% discount when a listener enters thinking at the books of discovery.com checkout page. Enjoy the show. And thank you to Andrew Beal and Books of Discovery for their support. We certainly appreciate you supporting the Thinking Practitioner podcast. Do be sure to check out their great offer and the multiple wonderful resources that they have available there. So, Mm -hmm. and while you're reading your book, make sure you don't get book neck while you're sitting there reading but That's we were right. gonna talk about text neck here, so. Text neck, yeah. What well, do you think, is it a thing?
1: Is it a thing, is text neck a thing? Uh, yeah, I think it's a thing. But like you, like you were alluding to in some of your comments about cobbler's neck, et cetera, there's a lot of things. And is text neck a, text neck a new level of threat to our existence as humans? I'm not so sure. And I and I'll put it in the show notes because I don't have a it, it right here, but there's some really interesting research that's tried to tease this apart. Is text neck or neck problems more frequent in people that text a lot? And there's it's not it's not a closed question. There's studies that um, proponents and opponents of that point of view use to argue both sides of that. Seems like they were not having uh, a huge uh, epidemic of heads falling off or etc., cetera yeah. from people texting. But maybe there are some, uh, as you could probably kind of commonsensically predict, there are some impacts. The more time you spend doing one thing and not others, there are some definite impacts of that. Yeah. So I think I am, um, I'm probably a little more liberal or tolerant in my thinking, you could say around texting, especially after having fought that battles with my own son coming through his teenage years and seeing that his, text, his head did not fall off, and he's basically a great young man. But uh, then it, it's also this question that can we adapt as humans to what we're doing? Yeah, adapting being the key, and maybe variety being the key there, as much as uh, don't look down to text. It's like, make sure you do some other stuff besides that in your life. Yeah. It comes so down to.
0: i got to follow this for just a second, because you, you mentioned something that, that caught my ear, and I was thinking about this. I hadn't really thought about it this way very much but you know so much i think probably of the the concern around something like text neck does happen because we see so many young people spending a lot of time on their devices doing this during the time when they're in their really formative neuromuscular programming yeah. stages you know so is it you know sure there's a lot of occupations where people have had to like tilt their head down and put their head down like i was mentioning but maybe it's a bigger concern because we're dealing a lot with people during their biomechanically formative years when they're establishing a lot of these neuromuscular patterns and maybe that does lend to a more long-term propensity for some of those posturally driven neuromuscular neuromusculoskeletal challenges somewhere later on but it may be too early to know what that's really going to look like when those people who've been texting a lot are in their 50s 60s and 70s etc so
1: Yes, that's right. And um, my son, for his, his from his sake, he's he says, no. I, now that he's twenty one, he's saying no. Uh, kids should not be texting all the time. He doesn't put in the part like like I was when I was that age. Right. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. it's it's true that uh, well, I don't know if it's true, but it's it's a useful point of view to say it's everything is bad in the wrong dose yeah it's more of a dose question and the variety of life kind of question that comes up there including the kind of attention and intelligence and uh impulse gratification that happens on your device that's an even bigger topic yeah so we you know those are wonderful things and maybe we need other inputs other ways of thinking and being as well too
0: yeah right so we also wanted to look at this um, from the sort of the, the teaching angle as yeah. well, since we yeah. have a situation now where lots of people are, you know, not doing classroom courses because of the COVID-19 situation. And we're all having to kind of like look at new strategies or methods. So um, what kind of things have you been doing, changing, tweaking, et cetera, doing? I know you've had some stuff with with a cervical course that you did recently and, and some really innovative kinds of tra- teaching strategies there. What, uh, what kind of things have you, well, Found. we're just
1: wrapping it up now. It's yeah. a it's a two-month live online course. It's a hybrid model where people watch demonstrations of me work, working. They do that by recording. And then they listen to a live lecture of me talking about the principles involved. And then they meet in a small group to discuss their questions, their... Uh, Uh, successes or challenges in applying the work some people are practicing so they get a chance to go actually do that many people have a practice partner or someone they can try the things out on but then we also are working with adapting the work into self-care techniques those are some of the homework assignments is to take what they see as a hands-on technique and use it for something that they can uh, do or feel or experience or learn about at least in themselves yeah then we get together and share those things real time yeah. It's proving to be really rich and really detailed.
0: So here's the question I have. Is that yeah. like when this is all over, do uh-huh. you foresee this as something that you might keep trying to do to some degree, or do you feel like you will go back to doing things exclusively? Well, you weren't doing things exclusively in the classroom to begin with, but do you think uh-huh. you'll incorporate some of these kinds of models in oh, some of your a Without a question. Without a question.
1: And the students yeah. and participants and professionals in, in the training are saying that too. They're saying, I, don't want to learn without this kind of interaction over time again because it's yeah. really allowing us much deeper discussions, on a, on a more theoretical level, but also on the experiential level. Yeah. Than just say a, a weekend intensive would or you, yeah. know, you know longer in person training. Right. But but how about you, Whitney? I know you've been working hard on your platform, and you're a fourth you know forward thinking guy. How is this whole scenario changing the way you teach and how is that manifesting in what you're offering?
0: Yeah, so we actually just uh, launched a new, completely revised and updated cervical course from our online platform that's been around for a couple of years. But the big change in this is that our goal in doing this whole update was to try to take a lot of the content that was in my assessment book and integrate that into the online platform so that it was part of what was going on in the course. And um, one of the things, this is kind of gets back to our discussion earlier on when I was talking about some basic principles of principles of biomechanics, Of one of the things that I had found uh, being a little bit frustrated with over the years past of trying to teach a lot of this stuff was understanding uh, or trying to find some tools to help the students understand more about, like, let's say a person says with their neck, Well, it hurts when I turn to the right. So, what's happening when you turn to the right? What's happening to all these different tissues? So, one of the things that we did in this new uh, course that we were putting together is I made these charts that were, I mean, they're like very complex and very tedious but I think really helpful in the clinic that break down, for example, every motion and all the major potential tissues that are going to be either pulled, stretched, compressed, or what's happening to them in those motions. So, for example, we take active rotation to the right and then list out in a chart what are the tissues getting stretched during that motion, what tissues are getting compressed, what tissues are passively shortening, which tissues are passively lengthening, that kind of thing. So people can really have a better understanding or a map essentially to go to, to figure out what might be the cause of certain pain problems. And then we take those uh, charts and have another series of charts to take those exact same motions and say like during right rotation, if the person has, or, or let's say active right rotation, if a person has pain on the left side of their neck during active right rotation, what might be causing that and breaking that down into those different things. And they can match that with those other, tissue structures to look at what was happening with them so um, by the time we get through with all these courses this will be a huge series of what i hope to be kind of very helpful quick reference charts of understanding the biomechanics of what's happening in every one of these different motions throughout the body sounds
1: comprehensive so if if i have your chart do i need your training
0: well, it helps, I think, to take that training to understand yeah. what to do with the charts. Okay. Because the other thing that we do with the charts is we use them as kind of like the, uh, the structure of how to look up and start thinking about these things. But then the more complex process of this is helping people understand how to decipher patterns. So, yes. for example, in the neck region, a person has pain with active forward flexion, you know, uh-huh. passive extension and resisted extension you know like that Mm -hmm. pattern of those things Mm -hmm. what does that mean and that's not really one single place to look that up in the chart that's kind of putting different pieces together and we do a lot of activities in our course to try to get people to to uh, look at those kinds of patterns of evaluation and see what they might be pointing to and then of course you know how do you figure out what to do about it that's the big question we all want to know
1: you showed me some of the earlier versions of those and that's that they were, I was impressed with the logic and the systematic use of those different movements and concepts. And I can really see them laying the groundwork for some in depth training together and that cr- building that critical thinking process to understand the logic involved and how to employ that clinically.
0: Yeah. So, and different people will, will go, you know, drill down to different levels of depth with it. I mean, I, you know, I, find that stuff really fascinating but i know not everybody you know is that much of a biomechanics geek about all those kinds of things but take it when you have a client that has a certain type of thing and be able to go back and know where you can get that information when you might need to access it and have it be helpful that's the kind of thing that uh, i hope to be a real more effective and useful tool for people so
1: and how do you, how do you see that playing out online why, why did you choose the platform you did what opportunity does that give you that kind of thing
0: well, mainly it's because, and this kind of goes back to my whole theory and, and process of, of why I went to doing stuff online to begin with, which mm. is that this kind of complex clinical reasoning stuff is really difficult to teach in the two-day weekend workshop format. Mm. Um, and so we went to asynchronous online learning strategies because I like to build a lot of these activities that can be spread out over time and students can, you know, practice, get feedback, make errors. Uh, because the, you know, errors are a really important part of the learning process and then have immediate feedback. So when the online modules they were in there doing things and, you know, a question asks them what kind of, you know, problem might have these group of symptoms and they answer a question, they get immediate feedback popping up about whether or not they're correct or incorrect and why. And that is so, so very important for really, so, you know, getting the learning at the moment.
1: That's fantastic. And you say that's asynchronous, meaning I do that on my own time. Yeah. I go and do that on my own and I can work through these problems and get that immediate feedback on my own.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then put it in, you know, smaller chunks because a lot of people like to just, you know, my, okay, my client didn't show up. I got 30 minutes that I'm not busy. I can go do something right now. Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to when there's a designated time period to come together and do some things. There is clearly value in both of those different types of strategies, but um, I really found a lot more of the, the complex clinical reasoning processes and things like that were most effective when we did those in asynchronous types of, of environments.
1: That's 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 what we're finding too. Yeah. We're having more detailed conceptual discussions and understanding, I think, is deepening. We're also getting a chance to go try things and bring them back for more discussion interaction. But so there's there's a lot of advantage that's coming in being able to be more engaged online. Yeah. And we just got to acknowledge, I don't know how you think about it. We got to acknowledge the limitations. This is, you know, not the same as in-person learning. And there's a whole in-person component that exactly. we need, to, we need yeah. to find and build into this process yeah. to really make it holistic.
0: My my hope for the future is that what this really helps us do is to build some really high quality hybrid learning approaches so that there's, yeah. because there's no question each one of these learning strategies has its advantages and disadvantages. I still, don't think, despite the innovative ways that people have been attempting to do things, that it's the best way to teach manual skills online. Mm. I still think that is best done in a in-person in environment in the classroom. Not to say you can't learn some things, but there's still uh, places where that, that potential learning strategy works best. That's I right. think trying to teach complex clinical reasoning in a classroom is not the best strategy for doing it. So each one of those things has their their benefits. And if we can kind of look at that from from creating hybrid learning environments that that take advantage of each one of those, that's that's what's I think gonna make us make some real good good headway out of this whole mess that we're no, in.
1: That's really that's really the uh silver lining if there is one and we're finding in this process too. It pushed us to get a lot more online and uh, got a whole lot more people interested in being a part of the online program that than were previously. Yeah. But we are finding some great surprises. We're able to go farther, like you said, with with a lot of the conceptual understanding and a lot of the discussions and really understand the rationale, of the principles behind the techniques.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's some uh particularly valuable things too, and I think you're probably getting some um experience of this is that there a lot of times in the classroom Some students who might be a little bit more on the shy side are not going to feel comfortable speaking up about something, especially if there's other students in there that are, let's say, you know, really bright and outgoing and vivacious and always want to answer questions and things like that. It does Mm -hmm. tend to cause some students to back off a little bit from their participation. And I don't know if you have seen this, but I've seen this a lot in the online environment with discussions and individualized activities when a student can have the opportunity um, not necessarily in a synchronous activity, but in something that is asynchronous to to think about things, to go back, reflect, talk about it, and then come back and answer some questions. oftentimes there's a deeper thought process than a deeper answer that they engage in and some of those really shy people just they shine they just really come out um, in, in that environment i love I love seeing that.
1: No, that's, we're finding that too. And then we're also finding how important it is to have multiple ways to engage. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, the real time, like you said, the real time voice discussions over Zoom in a small group, we have people doing it only by phone. We have people only doing it by write-in. And I think there's a whole uh, frontier there for us to learn about that, how to make online learning multimodal. We do, we're doing movement exercises that we lead together. We're having one to explore on your own. And that's the biggest challenge, of course, how do you make this embodied? Yeah. But we're finding ways. And it's pretty cool to think about how to bring all of what we know about learning theory into this arena.
0: Yeah. So uh, So
1: what else else do we want to talk about before we... Yeah, well, I I mean, I think
0: there's a lot of um, fascinating things that we can be doing in these areas. And I hope also, you know, applying some of these concepts to different body regions and things like that. You've got a new thing that you're heading down to the hip and pelvis next. Is that correct? Well, no, we're actually
1: going to spine, ribs, and low back. Okay. Yeah. Spine, ribs, and low back. That starts uh, early September. And you can jump into it by the nature of it. You can jump into it throughout the month of September, although it starts early September. Yeah. And uh, then we'll you know we'll keep doing the experiments and refining as we go along. How about you, Whitney? What's what's on the horizon for people that want to come do something with you?
0: Well, the next things we're doing we're going to completely revise our. Uh, again, this is part of turning the assessment book into um, the online environment. The next thing is sort of revising our introductory assessment and treatment concepts to sort of taking a lot of the content from both of my my previous books. Um, that's gonna be a fundamental module that will be before the others. And then we're moving to our next regional course, which I believe is probably gonna be the shoulder course. So um, we're gonna sort of ex- ramp up and accelerate all the revision process because I'm really eager to get those uh, courses updated into the new format and, and incorporate all this new uh, interesting stuff that we're doing. So that's, that's certainly where we're headed with that.
1: I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And so uh, in terms of anything else you wanna say before we wrap up?
0: I think that's kind of got a good uh, touch touch point on it for the things that we're talking about today. Lots of fascinating things to explore here. And uh, just the thing that I would encourage everybody is don't let this um, COVID-19 situation where we are unfortunately not able to get together with people be too much of a detriment and close down your ability to continue looking into stuff. Because there's a lot of fascinating things to learn and and move yourself forward with your exploration process while we're in this uh, unusual time that we are in here.
1: That's, that's well said. And just, I'll reiterate it. We don't know what the future holds. Some people are working, some people are not. We have no idea how this is going to go, but developing ourselves professionally and personally in the meantime is going to leave us in an amazing position to move forward with whatever comes.
0: I want to say a special thanks to our sponsors and thank you very much for your support, supporting the podcast. And as always, a very big thank you to all of the listeners, the people who are taking time out of their lives to listen to these conversations. We certainly hope they, Uh, bring you some uh, beneficial things to, for your clinic work as well.
1: Yay listeners and yay listener feedback. Love hearing from you. Thank you for that. And if you heard us uh, drop a reference about something you'd like to know more about, we'll put uh, all of that in the show notes. Remember to visit our sites to check out like say the studies or references we heard today, as well as a full transcript of what we said. So it's searchable and you can dial down to exactly what did Whitney say again? And where Whitney, where would people find that for you?
0: They can find that for uh, me over on the academyofclinicalmassage.com. And, uh, Till, where can people find you and uh, locations there? Our
1: site is advanced-trainings.com, advanced-trainings.com, or social media just under my name, Till Luca. How about you, Whitney, on social media?
0: Yeah, also on social just under my name. You can find me there. And uh, at... Uh, at Whitlow, I believe, is my Twitter handle. Also got some stuff that we uh, put out over there periodically as well. Yeah. If you will, uh, make sure to send us some input feedback. You can send email to us about the show, questions that you want to ask or anything like that. We love hearing from you. You can send that to info at as well.
1: Great. And follow us on Spotify, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. Tell a friend, be in touch. Thanks, Whitney.
0: Thank you, sir. Great talking about this. And we'll look forward to doing it again, too, in a couple of weeks.
1: See you next time.
0: Okie doke.